0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, folks, today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of Land of Big Numbers, the debut story collection from Diping Chen. Land of Big Numbers traces the journeys of the diverse and legion Chinese people, their history, their government, and how all of that has tumbled messily, violently, but still beautifully into the present. Pulitzer Prize winner Jennifer Egan calls it, quote, "...gripping and illuminating. Land of Big Numbers offers intimate glimpses of the seductive power of state control, the Faustian bargaining it requires of its citizens, the landscapes and lives it forces them to discard in exchange for material prosperity. At the heart of Ping Chen's remarkable debut... Lies a question all too relevant in 21st century America. What is freedom? Land of Big Numbers, the debut story collection by DePing Chen. Available now from Mariner Books. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I am in Los Angeles, and I have Rob Doyle on the program today. He's got a book out on Bloomsbury. It is called Threshold, and it's one of these books that's kind of hard to classify. It's somewhere between a novel, an essay collection, a travelogue, a personal confession... I love these kinds of books, and I really enjoyed Threshold. I read it over the holidays, I want to say. It was one of these situations where, you know, I get a lot of books sent to me, and I have a big pile sitting there, and uh, this happens sometimes. I've talked about this before. I will occasionally go through the pile. I'll pick up books. I'll start reading, and sometimes I start reading, and I don't stop, and that was the case with Threshold. So uh, Rob Doyle coming up in just a second. I do, again, want to mark the moment historically as I speak, or not, I guess, as I speak, we are uh, in the middle of the final night of Donald Trump's presidency. I'm recording this on the 19th of January, 2021. By the time you listen to this, in all likelihood, the Trump presidency will be over. Joe Biden, knock on wood will be sworn in and, uh, the nightmare will be over. It's hard to, uh, sum it up. I've tried, but it's just been a long four years. <laughs> That's all I can say. Uh, good riddance and in the days ahead we are going to have to figure out how it happened there's going to have to be a long process in the United States of coming to grips with what happened and why it happened and how it happened so that we can prevent it from happening again On top of that, I got the first uh, installment, if that's what you call it, of the uh, COVID-19 vaccine yesterday. Or, I'm sorry, I got it today. But by the time you listen to this, by the time this episode airs, it will be yesterday. So, on the 19th, today, I got my first uh, COVID shot. And it, it came about somewhat unexpectedly. My wife and I had no idea that we were in Group 1A. Uh, which is healthcare workers, because uh, we have a disabled child in our household. We are caregivers for a disabled person, which in the state of California classifies you as a healthcare worker, which frankly it should. Not only because disabled people, even children, are at a higher risk, but also because if anything were to happen to my wife or I, Like it's always awful if a child loses a parent, but if a disabled child loses one of his primary caregivers, it's a disaster. So I got a shot today. Uh, My wife Carrie's getting one on uh, Thursday, I believe. And then we got to go back in a few weeks, you know, three or four weeks or whatever and get the second round. So that's exciting. That was a genuine relief and a good feeling and a nice thing to do on the last day of the the reign of trump so rob doyle is my guest he is the author of several books his debut novel here are the young men was published back in 2014 by bloomsbury and uh, the lilliput press it was later made into a film starring Dean Charles Chapman and Anya Taylor-Joy. He then published a collection of short stories called This is the Ritual, critically acclaimed. And he is the editor of the anthology The Other Irish Tradition from Dahlke Archive and a book called In This Skull Hotel Where I Never Sleep from Broken Demanche Press. He's an accomplished journalist as well, having written for a variety of publications, including The Guardian Vice and The Sunday Times. Throughout 2019, he wrote a weekly column on cult books for The Irish Times. So uh, I'm very pleased to have had the chance to talk with Rob Doyle. He was in his, uh, I believe, his apartment in Berlin when we spoke. And. uh, I don't know I just really enjoyed his book and I got to talk to him right after I read it and I think it was productive so let's get right to that here is my conversation with Rob Doyle his latest book once again is called
1: Threshold for all my um, interest in these experiences you still you take it you smoke DMT and you come back to your human life, you know, your your parents are still ill or, you know, your 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 best friend has still been horribly hurt or, you know, you're you're still in this world with all these responsibilities and all of this suffering. And I don't think those experiences do any of the heavy lifting for you in terms of, let's say, the moral life, you know, the ethical life. Um, that they, they can perhaps give you a glimpse of something that allows you to get in touch with something deeper in yourself. But, uh, I, I, I don't think on their own, they're enough to, um, t- to, uh, to, address the pressing concerns of, uh, of being alive.
0: Yeah. There's know. a funny, there's a, a great anecdote, um, from uh, Richard Alpert, who went on to become Ram Dass. And he like, famously went to India and met Neem Karoli Baba, the Indian spiritual figure. I'm sure you're probably f- familiar with him. Um, or at least know his name. Not so much. Yeah, yeah Mahara- Maharaji. You know, oh, yeah,
1: of course. Yeah. Okay. Is, wait, wait, is this the one that the Beatles also went to? No, no. This...
0: That's that's uh that's the guy who founded TM. But Maharaji, oh, yeah. Neem Karoli yeah. Baba, was like this bald guy with a mustache, wore a white robe. Um, yeah. and people, there were a lot of people in the West and in American culture in the '60s, like a lot of baby boomer hippies type people who went over to India during that era and they met him and you know all of the anecdotes are similar like he could read your mind basically and mm-hmm. you know like richard alpert his mother had just died a few months earlier and the night before he met maharaji he like had to pee and so he like leaves his hut where he's staying in india and he goes outside to pee And he like looks up at the sky and has this moment where he thinks about his mother. Didn't tell anybody, went back to bed. The next day he happens to meet Maharaji and they're sitting there and Maharaji's like, so you thought about your mother last night? And Mm -hmm. Alpert was like, what? And he's like, and he, then he was like, yeah, she died of, of her spleen. He said spleen and she had died. You know, her spleen had been the problem and, Alpert just Mm -hmm. starts sobbing just like explodes into tears he's also panicking because he thinks that like the cia is like somehow like spying on him but he couldn't he couldn't square it like he couldn't figure out how this guy could possibly have known this and the skeptic in me is immediately like what there's no way you know but over and over again there are anecdotes of this guy doing this Mm -hmm. with people and uh you know the the related note when it comes to psychedelics is that albert who with timothy leary sort of you know brought psychedelics to american culture with uh, the lsd experiments that they were conducting at harvard uh he had some acid on him some tablets and he was trying to tell maharaji about it and maharaji's like you got you got the medicine and he was like yeah he's like let me have it and he dumps like like an, an incredibly large dose of l s d into the guy 's hands and he takes it all at once. <clears throat> he just downed it and was completely unaffected, according wow. to Ramdas and I think about that, and then I try to like somehow square it with you know Buddhism or Hindu spiritual attainment and yeah. do you see what i'm getting at like i i just I wonder at what the connectivity might be and why. A guy like that could take that much acid and be totally unaffected
1: yeah but i, I mean you also read I, just about a year when i you know i moved to berlin a couple of years ago and just around the corner from where i'm living now in Friedrichshain, there was this little bookshop called the psychedelic bookstore and it was wonderful you went in and it was all these kind of beautiful radiantly healthy glowing young kind of techno hippies from all over europe seemed to run the place and they, they they sold books about psychedelics, but also about all this kind of hippie stuff and spiritual stuff and whatnot. But it was a real nice kind of vibe in there. You could drink tea and so on. And so for the first time, I bought the and read uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead in a beautiful, which again, it's kind of a 60s cliche, you know, all of these Timothy Leary and so on. were reading it and talking about it. But I bought this beautiful, the edited and and produced um penguin penguin classics i guess version and read it uh for the first time and of course this is in the wake of having had all of these crazily um disorientating um, philosophically destabilizing psychedelic experiences and i was kind of reading it gone jesus like it, whereas there was a time in my life where when I would have read that and just saw it as the kind of delusional, you know, the, the, the picturesque delusions of a, of a, of a kind of backward society or something like that. <laughs> I'm kind of looking at it now going, no, fuck, these guys were onto something. These guys, you know, um, through whatever practices of deep meditative states and whatever, uh, wisdom traditions they kind of passed on over the generations. Um, Who's to say that the stuff that I'm startled to discover through um, these psychedelic practices and psychedelic experiences, you know, that some some cultures like Tibetan Buddhism, maybe they're able to access these states too, or to be able to produce such rarefied states of consciousness and um, of the psyche that they can. They can somehow break break out of it, you know, break out of the matrix kind of thing, and and tap into all this stuff without necessarily having to smoke DMT. Well, I don't do- know. I mean, this is this is all speculation, of course.
0: Well, but I want to say I've read somewhere that the brain, upon death, yes. re- is uh, it releases DMT because like, the the DMT is produced by the human body. We we forgot to mention yes. that. Like, it's not some I mean, it's an external substance, but it's also generated in our own brains.
1: Yeah, and in most living um, organisms actually, yeah, in trace amounts.
0: So, but if like this, like I guess like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the sort of supernatural, like mind-blowing experiences that people have on DMT and this notion of the brain being flooded with um, organic DMT upon death, starts to make some kind of connective sense to me like maybe there's something to yeah. maybe there's something to that
1: yeah absolutely I, i've read that myself and one of the books that i kind of uh discuss in the dmt chapter of threshold is uh rick strassman's book dmt the spirit molecule and he, he's an interesting guy in that this was back in i think the early 90s somewhere in a some university in california he's a medical doctor and somehow in a university in california he somehow got around the kind of byzantine um you know war on drugs legislation and created the conditions whereby he could legally study uh, the effects of dmt in extremely high doses on consenting volunteers and um He was, I think he was a Buddhist too, actually, Uh, a a Buddhist who came from a a Jewish background, but he had become a Buddhist. But anyway, he was using it very much to study the near-death experience state and um, the experiences that his patients, his volunteers had, and the research he conducted on all of that are absolutely extraordinary. That is a book. Anyone who's interested in this stuff, I would really strongly recommend that book.
0: I want to say it's also been made into a documentary. Isn't there a documentary film called The Spirit Molecule?
1: There is. And he's a kind of talking head in it. But I, I, as far as I think I watched it, you know, late at, late at night on YouTube once. And uh, if memory serves, I think the documentary is worth watching, but it's a bit more kind of fragmentary and a bit psychedelic in and of itself whereas the book comes from the vantage point of uh he's not he's nobody's idea of a kind of tripped out hippie you know he's a he's a he's a he's a believer in the scientific method and in empirical research and in um all of the things that have a kind of air of intellectual credibility to them so it's what makes his book for me kind of stand out from a lot of the other ones is that he's a kind of skeptic who gets kind of turned by um, the nature of what he uncovers. And one of the things that happens to most of his patients, even some of those who have terminal illnesses, cancer and so forth, is they kind of make their peace in a very absolute way with their own demise, with their own impending demise. which suggests that there may well be qualities to these substances that are worth our while looking at as a a culture. And we have been doing, you know, there's that Michael Pollan book a couple of years ago. I don't know if that one came on your radar. I read read it.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say he's a similar, he was kind of like an an avowed materialist who tried these things. And so he's a, I think people like that are good um, tour guides, you know, for the skeptic or for somebody who's coming at it cold because yeah. you know they, they this is not somebody who like lives in a van and you know has like changed his name to Starchild. like this is a guy who's <laughs> you know yeah, no is... no
1: no grateful dead records or nothing, nothing yeah. yeah I mean they, exactly and he's kind of a yeah he's a skeptical baby boomer type and i think that's very interesting that people like that are starting to bring it to the mainstream um and i mean i don't know under the in in the states in the trump years i don't know if that all went out the window, but there did, about three, four years ago, there did seem to be a kind of second wave of um, mainstream um, academic uh, and exper- experimental research into the effects of psychedelics and their effects on consciousness and magic mushrooms and what was it, in Johns Hopkins University and so on. I don't know if it all got shut down or something, but things really seemed to be happening there for a while. The um the prohibitions were beginning to be questioned, and again the mainstream uh, was starting seemed to be starting to open up to the potential benefits of this stuff again in a way that hadn't really been the case since the 1960s.
0: Yeah, I mean there, um, it's a it's a it's a sad it's a sad like academic and scientific history actually because it was such a hot uh, and. There was so much enthusiasm for the study of psychedelics in the mid part of the 20th century, which I didn't realize, and then it all got yeah. shut down yeah. uh, to the detriment of humanity. Because I think there are obvious therapeutic possibilities for it. You talk about like end of life therapy or people who are <clears throat> facing a terminal diagnosis and you know might take some psilocybin in a controlled setting with the help of therapists and doctors who can you know realize some kind of peace around their own end uh, like what's wrong with that like why are we yeah. preventing people from having this kind of uh, help and experience if it can be uh delivering these kinds of results it seems inhumane
1: well exactly and and whatever about dnt which is it is a bit kind of extreme and it's kind of the bungee jump and it's a bit scary but i mean anybody almost anybody who's ever tried psilocybin mushrooms you know in the right circumstances and at the right time it's it's very it's a very hard thing to persuade me or to i think to persuade anyone who's had that experience that it's not an essentially benign experience i mean whenever i take mushrooms i don't take them all that often but they really uh it just feels like such an obviously and irrefutably positive thing you know in terms of the aspects the, almost the, the embodied, the, the inherent value system contained in, in, in psilocybin uh, and how it kind of encourages you to cultivate the better parts of yourself and um, move away from the worst parts of yourself. Again, you know, it doesn't do the heavy lifting for you, but it certainly points you in the right direction. And then the idea that we've just criminalized all this stuff—I mean, even in Ireland, these things grow in the ground, but they're illegal to possess or to consume, uh, which is absurd. That's silly. Yeah, it's just—it's kind of backwards. It's a primitive, obnoxious, and primitive um, uh, attitude, really.
0: Well, I think there are vested interests. You know, there there are uh, entities that have a vested interest in making sure that we all have generally speaking the same agreed upon reality and like you quote i think terence mckenna i'm gonna botch it again but he says basically (laughs) these things have the power to invalidate your idea of reality Um, not in a bad way necessarily but like i think that's one of the great benefits of taking psychedelics for me is that if nothing else like you said they're not going to deliver any kind of magical Mm. answer or do the heavy lifting for you but if nothing else they deepen the mystery and they make you realize yes. how very little, you know, and yeah, that's hugely valuable. It delivers a kind of humility and a kind of questioning that, you know, for me, I took these things first when I was a teenager and, and in college and I, uh, that has never left me, even though I've only done them a handful of times, you know, it's not something you do. A lot of, I don't think, or you don't need to. Um. Yeah, you don't, you don't
1: need to. But the phrase you use to deepen the mystery. I mean, I, I kind of. That's what I love about them, and it's kind of what I love about my favorite. It's what my favorite art and you know psychedelic experience and kind of all the things I love have in common is that they deepen the mystery rather than you know necessarily resolve it or solve it they they deepen it and kind of that's enough for me i don't know that's life life enhancing enough in itself
0: it also seems to square more with like anybody who can tie it up in a bow (laughs) um (laughs) you better make a really compelling case i tend to be (laughs) suspicious of those kinds of takes and uh, yeah you know i think like like as i consider your book and the way that it's woven together um because it functions as a kind of travel log it functions as a kind of inner exploration it functions as a kind of like uh, you know a diary of excess like it's operating on lots of different levels but there's a grappling at, at the heart of it trying to understand what is going on and to make sense of um existence in a cosmic sense but also to try to make sense of existence at the level of just plain old human suffering. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, And I loved it as a reader because I would love to travel and you are a very well-traveled human being. Um, Hmm. You're also taking things to extremes, which is fun to read about, especially if you're like me and, you know, I've got young children and I hide in my garage. I'm like, this guy's... I get to live this existence through this guy. (laughs) Um, And then I think, too, the book also functions as a kind of... um, is ekphrastic the right word? It's like a book that's about its own making. It's a book about itself. And I can feel the trial and error in it, which speaks to me as a writer and a writerly person and a creative person. I love when works of art, uh, you know, talk about themselves in their own making. So I guess the, the question that I'm driving at, is like, how did you arrive there with this book? It feels like there were a lot of false starts along the way and you didn't necessarily realize what you had until you'd gotten quite a lot down on the page and started to thread it together. Like, am I on the right track or did you have this all laid out in your head in a perfect outline?
1: Uh, Not a perfect outline, but there's probably a bit more design there than I let on in the book. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I feel I should point out that even though we've talked at some length uh, about psychedelics and drugs and so on. This is very much one just one aspect of the book. You know, if if you asked me what the book was about, I, I certainly wouldn't just say it's a book about psychedelics. You know, that's I guess that's about 20% of what it's about. It's really about all the other stuff you you talked about. It's about um it's about a consciousness trying to make sense of itself. And it's about travel. And um all of that stuff. And yeah, it's about art and writing. But w- when I started writing, I'd, I had finished my um, first novel, which is called Here at the Young Man*. It came out in 2014. And then I had a, a book of short stories. Uh, this is the ritual that came out a couple of years later. And while in between those two books, um, I started I just knew I was kind of very much bored with the the fictional kind of artifice, let's say, the creation of the characters and the kind of puppet show thing. And I wanted to get to the heart of the matter a bit more and write in a far more direct, uh, intimate, autobiographical way. And um, but, but first I started to write these kind of standalone investigations of my own obsessions really um one of the first chapters i wrote is the third chapter which is called grave and it's about going to uh paris in the winter in january of uh, 2015 so just days after the charlie hebdo uh, terror attacks had happened there with the intention of researching uh, a book I wanted to write about the Romanian philosopher and pessimist and aphorist uh, E.M. Choran. Um, And so I did go there. And the chapter, yeah, the chapter is about going there and realizing that I wasn't going to end up writing this book about Choran, And the realization of all the reasons why that book was never going to get written and the kind of abortive journey to Paris to do all the research for it and have those revelations about why the book would never get written became the chapter in itself. And again, it was one of those moments where I'd hit upon a voice that I was kind of striving towards for quite a while. Uh, but that allowed me to go headlong where I could very easily, even in the course of a single page, I could switch between registers I could be talking quite in in a quite you know um, uh textured nuanced way about literature, about another writer about art, and then I could kind of very quickly veer off into personal digressions into uh, almost slapstick anecdotes and uh into kind of traveloggy stuff about where i was and uh once i had that in place once i'd written that chapter and also the opening chapter about mushrooms i just kind of knew that i was going to spend a while probably a couple of years two three years um going deeper, taking this voice as far as I could. For years, I had had a book in mind, which would involve um, lots of places, you know, a different part of the world, a different uh, place I had lived or I had wandered through for each section, each chapter. But I, it was only really once I had kind of hacked into that particular voice that I knew how to do that you know, that I knew I had to make that happen. And, uh, what, what,
0: what was it about the voice? Mm-hmm. I mean, was it like, when you talk about arriving at this voice, do you think mm-hmm. that you just found your voice? I mean, I know that's kind of a trite thing to say in the realm of creative writing, but you know, it's a personal book, it's auto fiction. Mm-hmm. So is that what you finally got to? You finally got to the place where you could be yourself on the page in a, in a manner that felt authentic, or is it something else?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's that. But but I guess when I say the voice, what I mean, I guess the, a, probably a better word for it is container. And what I mean by that is a, a mode of writing that is not straightforward fiction. You know, my first book was, um, it, it was quite a conventional first book, you know, it was a kind of thinly veiled um, uh, novel about a bunch of young people in Dublin, kind of going off the rails and doing all of this stuff and you know getting into some extreme experiences but it was very much um it was kind of a novelty novel let's say uh this one it was when i say capture getting the voice i mean creating that kind of container whereby i could put everything in without ever having to kind of uh stray from my own concerns so again you know i could be writing in depth about the philosophy and the literature of em choran and then very very quickly i could swerve to talking about sexual fantasies or remorse or regrets or describing an encounter i had with a friend or something like that so uh i I guess what i mean is uh, i um Became, I kind of forged uh, a, a manner of writing which was comfortably uh, at home in essay, in comedy, in kind of slapstick, in introspection, in ruminations and reflections and meditations and digressions. And, uh, you know a voice that was kind of capacious and nimble and flexible enough to be able to kind of move readily and handily between all of those registers. And yeah, I mean, it's not to say that um, my first two books were written in somebody else's voice and then only in the third book threshold did I get to my own. It, It wasn't that at all. It was more It was more that this one I just got closer up to the essence of it you know and I could just I felt with this book I could have less mediation or maybe no mediation between my personality myself and you know the the content of the book um
0: I want to ask you about that um yeah. this issue of honesty on the page uh, self-revelation self-exposure, like I've had the thought before, like recently, that if any human being, you could pluck anybody off the street, if they were to sit down and write their true selves into a book and put it down on, on a page, there would be plenty in anybody to make a reader like either recoil or feel uncomfortable or feel critical or feel a sense of connection or like there's, you know, we all contain these multitudes. And I think Mm. that in the age of social media, we get to curate ourselves to Mm. such a fanatical degree that, you know, a lot of people have become masterly at sort of cultivating online personas or, you know, a written persona or a digitally presented persona that is just sort of like Teflon. Um, All the all the rough edges are sort of sanded away, and I could feel you moving in the other direction in this book. You're sort of willfully exposing uh, all of yourself, or mo- you know, I guess I shouldn't say that because mm. there's plenty withheld. But I just yeah. got the sense that you were you were making a strenuous effort to not hide and to to uh, stick your chin out and say, "Okay, this is me," and this might not be you know, the sanitized version of a human being, and especially like a white male human being that um, people are pining for right now, but this is, yeah. this is the real and I'm going to put it down and whatever happens, happens. Like you talk yeah. about those creative decisions and the the actual writing process and was it difficult
1: for you to? to... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question, but I, I would say it comes quite naturally. And there's, you see, the, the, there's a lot, there's a certain amount of aggression in it, okay, because this culture that you've talked about, you know, this um, sanitized and self-sanitizing culture, I hate it. I, I do, you know, I really hate it uh, a lot of the time and I just find it so dead and so lifeless and I just, it's not good enough, you know, like I spent, like you, like I'm sure a lot of your listeners, I spent my whole life immersed in literature and you know, the great thing about literature is like a writer will sit down and they'll just go for it, they'll give it to you all, you know, and they'll 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 write for their lives. And so um the, the the bar is set pretty high. And then when you're in this culture that suddenly over five years or so has suddenly changed to where everybody is supposed to pretend that they're this idealized version of themselves and that they're unproblematic and that they're not flawed and they're not completely fucked up and that they're not, you know, in, in lots of ways and that they don't contain multitudes, that they just contain a, a kind of timeline self or a, you know, a, a, a tweetable self or uh, it's just, it's, 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 it's bullshit, you know? And so, um, but also I think I have certain kind of exhibitionistic qualities, which really came to the fore more in this book, even than my previous ones. And so there's a kind of jouissance, to use a, a pretentious French word, uh, in, in exposing that, you know, there's a real, there's an eroticism to, um, to kind of saying, yeah, you know, I know as the white guy, as the, as the straight cis dude, you're not supposed to talk about this stuff, but here's the way it is. You know, I have all, I have all of these desires and I have all of these fucking flaws and, and, and stuff and just putting it down. Um, and again, you know, a lot of people won't like it. And you know, I read you know reviews and stuff, and and then some of the the more brutal reviews are like the online reviews, you know, where it's not for like a newspaper, it's like a I don't know Amazon or a Goodreads review or something, and people really they take the gloves off, and there's a lot of real revulsion there. Sometimes, I mean, I know, and don't, don't get me wrong, I don't think I'm any worse than anybody else or any better than anybody else. But it's just I think we're falling out of the habit of uh, expecting candor from our writers. And so when you go in that direction now, you can kind of elicit um, a, a certain amount of shock and abhorrence and so on. But the other side of it is what I talked about earlier, which is far more people seem to have said, oh, thank God, you know, I can breathe that bit more freely when I read this because someone is just c- kind of going for it. Um
0: I, I find, I find, I want to interject because I find that if, if someone is being, is really making an effort to be honest with me and I'm, you know, I guess in this context, I'm talking about a writer. If I feel like a writer is on the page and I can really feel like they're working hard to be honest with me, that's, I think that's all I want. Um, even if i don't necessarily like what i'm hearing or i don't agree with it 100 percent, i'd rather have that than to have somebody i feel like who's pandering to me or who is trying to present like a stylized version of themselves that's built to please the maximum number of people or built to seem as woke as possible or you know all these different postures that people take on i find that far more exhausting than somebody presenting themselves honestly with all of their flaws and tendencies that so many of us share you know in part or in whole but might feel either unable or unwilling to share like you do some i think you do uh, writers do people a service in in that way mm-hmm. by by articulating you know those inner experiences and outer experiences mm-hmm. that we might not all have language for and maybe i'm just yeah. stating the obvious but it seems like no, we're moving away from that
1: yeah, but I mean, when, when you put it out there as a writer, you're kind of taking one for the team, you know, because chances are, no matter how embarrassing or um, problematic or whatever your experience has been, you know, most of the people who read you will have had some um, variant or some degree of that or some similar experience to that, you know. And again, they'll feel that bit less... Uh, let i i just that whole the whole so- social media world and you know i'm i'm not just i'm not going to sit here and like uh you know we're all implicated in this world you know i'm 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 not uh you know I, I i partake in these things myself to some degree but it's so um it's just creating this culture where like you say you find it exhausting and so do I when somebody is trying to present this uh, airbrushed you know sanitized instagramable twittery version of themselves and of reality and I find it exhausting too but I think I'm I'm that bit maybe more misanthropic than some of the people around me and I also find it loathsome and I find it maddening and (laughs) I kind of want to shake them up and say come on it's like when I'm talking with my friends, you know, we we don't hold back. You know, we're not trying to curate that kind of thing. We just talk and talk and talk. And it's endlessly, you know, that's what, that's what your friends are. They're just people you can endlessly talk candidly, you know, about anything with. And that's just being lost now because we're all so afraid of saying this and afraid of saying the wrong thing and afraid of being thrown fed to the lions, you know, afraid of being cancelled of having her livelihood stripped away and so on and uh here's the thing M- maybe i'm i get a bit obsessive about this stuff and i even borderline kind of hysterical or paranoid but i'm i'm becoming convinced that that kind of um self-curating self-sanitizing self-presentation um, as the woke saintly figure is not only permeating the kind of personae of the writers, but it's also permeating their fictions. And so they're starting to create fictional worlds, which are idealized rather than, you know, which, which, which describe the ideal world rather than the actual world. Uh, it's almost like it's the Instagrammification of, of, of the universe of all things, you know, where the whole world is becoming. Uh, Even the imaginative world is becoming this smoothed down, um, airbrushed, um, filtered um, version of itself. And it's just, it's just dead. You know, the culture is just dead. Uh, To be honest, I have a feeling that you guys, as in American writers, probably have it even worse. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It's just watching American culture from the outside, even though I get so angry a lot of time thinking that Irish culture is just a kind of slavish imitation of American culture and American cultural kind of politics and so on. But it does seem like, um, it, it does seem a bit more airless and claustrophobic over there in terms of, uh, in terms of how brutally they're going to take you down. If you, if you say the wrong thing, if you have the wrong thought, if you don't hold the right views, even in your fictions or something, maybe, maybe I'm just becoming paranoid, you know?
0: I don't know. I had to quit social media. Like I'm completely off.
1: Are you? Oh, I respect that. I, 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 I didn't know that. I assumed that, um, so I'm off Twitter. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Whenever, uh, whenever I hear somebody has done that, my kind of, esteem for them rises even though i still use like instagram and stuff but you you, you've gone off all of
0: them the show like the podcast has a twitter feed and an instagram but i have somebody do the tweeting uh and the the posting for me and before before i come across seeming like totally above it all like i do still read twitter as like a news source um i'm also working on a book you know where it's sort of necessary for me to peruse it but sure. i don't have the pressure of having to to join the conversation or to say anything on it which is half the you know more than half the battle it takes a lot of the worst parts of it out of it for me but i just yeah, yeah i finally got to the point where i was like i don't think this is adding anything positive to my life and if it might even be sapping my vital energies i'm spending too much time being pissed off about it or thinking about it and I don't know. I just felt there was something slavish about the way that I was behaving because I was pretty addicted to Twitter, um, yeah. constantly on it. You know how much of my life and creative energies were given to this corporation. You know, is the thinking, and I finally yeah. just said, "I'm done," and I have not
1: rejoined, which is good. So oh, that's that's so great to hear. It's funny because of all the problems and all of the terrible things that are happening in the world today. My mind has getting so twisted up that the one thing I kind of cogitate on most bitterly and rancorously is Twitter, not even social media, it's specifically Twitter. I think it's just because in the world that I'm in, you know, the literary world, particularly like the Irish literary world and cultural world, it's all dominated by twitter and all the journalists dominate and you know they, they kind of talk about it as if it's the world and they believe it's the world but the tone on it is so smarmy and it's so so i was on it for years you know like yourself and then if a couple of years ago i decided what happens if i just don't do it anymore and so get off it and just the quality of my life genuinely improved yes. pretty much immediately yes. it really did and i just was less misanthropic. you know i had less uh less anger less loathing less kind of malign feelings for my fellow human beings on a daily basis less insecurity less hate but but the, but the loathing of twitter itself never really went away i went back on it briefly recently to uh just to kind of promote the when 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 the book came out, you know, I just went on there. But I decided, okay, this time I'm not going to retweet anybody. I'm not gonna get involved in any conversations. I'm gonna use it purely as a propaganda organ for my own stuff, you know, and just see what happens and see if uh and and then I did that for a couple of months and then I got off it. But uh but even though the quality of my life improved, my kind of obsessional loathing of the platform and what it's done to the world, and how it's kind of just lowered lowered the quality of life on Earth, in my opinion, to some extent, um, has not gone away. And in fact, it's become almost personalised. I've started to um, have a very irrational kind of loathing for Jack Dorsey himself. Um, you know, whenever I see his face, I kind of get this almost like fight or flight instinct. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's I did. He's damaged me in ways I'll never forgive him for.
0: I think, I mean, you know, I think that the jury is still out, though. I think a lot of, you know, some of the returns are starting to come in in terms of what these sites do to us neurologically and emotionally, and then also what they do to us culturally and politically. I mean... (sighs) Yeah. I mean, I, there are, I guess you could find some positives, but there are some pretty profound negative impacts uh, and, um, you yeah. know, I, I we're, mean, we're nowhere close to solving, solving
1: those. I mean, with, it's been years since I've, you know, deleted, I mean, fully deleted my Facebook account. So maybe it's all changed for the better, but I would really, really doubt it. But for those two p- platforms in particular, for Twitter and Facebook, I really I it, you would have to work hard to convince me that the net good that has come from those two has not been um, dwarfed by the net bad. You know, it just didn't have. Again, I you know come from Ireland and Ireland is a small place. It's like a village and Twitter in particular, it just has this kind of curtain twitching vibe to it. You know, it's uh, it it's just kind of to me. It's just the great crime is that it's just. Degraded and eroded the bonds of solidarity between citizens, between the populace, and turned factionalized this all and turned us all into enemies of each other. And um, uh, yeah, but you know, of course, they're. Your wonderful things too. And I've kind of, I use Instagram for a fair bit. And the funny thing is, I've only been on that for like a year and a half. And it just, I haven't really had any kind of negative experiences on it. I know it's compulsive and it's, you know, inherently addictive like the rest of them. But uh, it just hasn't, it doesn't seem as dystopian to me yet. It seems a bit frivolous and a bit kind of, um, a bit narcissistic and so on. But it doesn't seem to have that kind of, um, corrosive, um, kind of anti-solidarity element that I find in Twitter, you know, where everybody just becomes narrowly factionalized and hates. It's not run on hate to the same extent that I would say Twitter and increasingly Facebook seem to be. Uh-huh. That's my. Th- but also, as a writer, this will probably piss off people, but I kind of also came to the conclusion that I don't... Well, I wouldn't say the conclusion, but I reached a strong suspicion around the idea that you can stay on the likes of Twitter in any kind of serious way and engage with it in any kind of serious way and remain any kind of serious writer. You know, I mean, that's, that sounds like a very judgmental thing to say, but I, 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 I do have those suspicions. I do
0: too. I do too. And yet I I can also Mm -hmm. look at writers who are on Twitter who are publishing good books and, way more prolific than I am and I'm like maybe they're just wired differently or they're using it differently but but are the books yeah I mean I guess
1: are they new are they can can you do can you really <laughs> I don't know, you know but I go back and I, forth
0: in my head I'm like maybe yeah, I'm wrong I
1: mean I I think even I think of a few and I, you know obviously I'm not going to get into names or whatever but I think of a few of them and I think wow that's clearly a very talented writer and, you know, they've uh, they, they, there's much to recommend their books. And then I read them and I can still see how the consciousness that created the book is maybe again, it's I'm just projecting my own prejudice and my own paranoia. But I still feel when I read their work that the consciousness that created it is constrained and um, hampered and curtailed. And limited because they're they're slaves to the Twitterverse, you know, they're slaves to the Twitter psyche, to the hive. And um, but I don't know, you know, of course, no one wants to just become some sort of luddite reactionary or whatever. But it's it, it's a difficult thing to you know to 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 maintain your own creative energy and inspiration and all that. So I think it's it's only write that as writers you know we would at least try to question these things and figure out if they're just bad for us or good for us you know it's just like alcohol you know I, I, I like drinking alcohol but I know if I wake up and drink it every morning for breakfast I'm probably gonna you know <laughs> I, I, my, my writing career is probably gonna deteriorate pretty rapidly you know and now that we know now that the now that the the secret is out that these things are addictions, you know um, social media platforms are run on a kind of engine of addiction. Um, it's only it seems to me only proper that we would start to wonder if it's in our best interests to be to be uh, mainlining them all the time if we want to write, if we want to get some work done, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> So I yeah. wanna I wanna ask you about you you've alluded to Ireland and I definitely mm. want to talk to you about your upbringing there because you um, I guess were born and raised in the Dublin area is that right Yes that's right and yeah. then yeah. you've lived all over the world in your adult years you're an expatriate yes. in the yeah. Joycean mode or whatever you know <laughs> there's uh, yeah. you've you've managed to find. A way to make a living and survive uh, in South America, in France, in Germany now, uh, Sicily. I'm trying to think of what I've missed, but you've been all over the place. So yeah, let, the let's... states too. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, in the states too. So let's start though in Ireland. Like, where were you born, and how did you grow up?
1: Yeah, well, I was born in the early 80s, in 1982, in Ireland, in Dublin, as you say, um, the capital, obviously, and uh, yeah, I grew up there to, I guess, uh, just a, a work- in a working class household. Um, I was the first, you know, me and my brother were the first uh, first people in our family to go to college to have a third level education. Uh, and that kind of thing just because of changing generational circumstances and so on and I studied philosophy and uh psychoanalysis and stayed in Ireland till I was 23 till I had finished my studies really and um then I left Ireland yeah I you know I, I had a really kind of bad uh I had a very dark uh, early youth, let's say, between about 1920 and 23. It was a pretty hellish time, just a kind of mental, cri- mental breakdown kind of stuff going on. And then I kind of left Ireland after I finished college and traveled with the idea of doing so for about a year. You know, this is when I was just getting into uh, meditation, like we talked about earlier and um, that kind of stuff. So I was kind of traveling around Asia with a a good friend of mine uh, and then was kind of so into this whole idea and was having kind of notions that I would become a writer at that time, too, but was having such a rich time of it all and was kind of uh, sufficiently disaffected from... um, (laughs) The capitalist expectations of a life—you know—you get a job and you do this and you do that. That I decided just to keep drifting around. My friend went back home after about a year, and I just went on to South America, went to India, and then South America. How do you? Aff- How of, did you afford it? I'm curious. Uh, well, I had I had um, worked in the post office of all places for for a couple of years before while I was in college. I kind of worked all through college part time, and I was living at home with my parents, so I saved up quite uh quite a bit of money and then just kind of traveled around in you know southeast asia and places like that which are compared to ireland you know in, in those times ireland had a very strong economy so these were very inexpensive places where you could live and hang out and you know do what i was doing and uh but then when the money ran out i just kind of worked in jobs you know i worked in bars in like peru and in uh where else in in Bolivia I worked in a bar I worked in a in a kind of tourist agency in Potosi which is a beautiful melancholy kind of mountain town there and then I taught English as a foreign language you know which I think I have a feeling a lot of uh, writers do do this at some stage because it's just such a good way to um, particularly to live abroad and to you know make money in a you know, not particularly taxing manner. So I I lived in Colombia for a while where I was teaching English. Um, And, yeah, just moved back then. Then I went off to London. Teaching was my main thing for a while. And I would teach philosophy too. In London, I uh, became a tutor of philosophy, which is kind of, you know, you get kind of parachuted into the, the homes of the rich when they're having a philosophical Emergency, and they need uh, they need a bit of tutoring to get them through their final exams or their university exams or whatever. Uh, so that, yeah, that's what I did. But by that stage, I was determined to to. This was kind of from let's say my mid twenties to the end of my twenties was the period of um, focusing on on really trying to tr- trying to figure out whether I could I. Did actually have what it took to be a writer rather than just longings, <laughs> fantasies, and longings about writing.
0: Do you have any writer like writerly genes? I mean, you say you came from a working class household, no. either of your
1: parents? Oh, yeah, no, no, not at all, not at all. Um, my, you know, my both of my parents, and this, this is not at all uncommon for people of that generation, but both of my parents had left school by the time they were 15, you know, fifteen, sixteen, 16, um, they, they left school to work because it was kind of expected of them. So they didn't even get to the end of what we call secondary school, what you guys call high school. Um, and so culture ideas, intellectualism, all of that stuff. were not, um, we not, we're not paramount in my family. Um, i mean, my dad is he's definitely a reader and so is my mother and they they were always very encouraging of me and my brothers in in all those regards but uh but there is zero zero it's funny i just last uh week or so i read the new martin amos book you know uh inside story and his father of course was kingsley amos you know so there's this kind of lineage this um, family of novelists. And to me, that's the most alien thing in the world. Uh, I th- There's nothing in my background at all, artistic or musical, nothing in my family remotely like that. Uh,
0: so what about this? Uh, you, you go off to college and you have these yeah. fraught years between, what, like 19 and 23. Um, was yeah. that where you think maybe you first started to grapple with like artistic leanings. Like, can you talk a little bit more about that period? Cause I know it was dark and uncomfortable, but mm. a lot of times I think people's artistic temperaments are forged in those kinds of periods or they're brought to the fore somehow by difficult life experiences.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I I think I definitely had a, a very, uh, um, a definitely artistic, inclination before that, you know, ever since I was 15 or 16, I, I, you know, I got into music in a big way before I got into literature in a big way. And so from the time I was like 15, 16, I was playing in bands, you know, punk kind of punk bands and anarchic, uh, kind of music we were making and, um, kind of writing lyrics and writing songs and so on. And, uh, just, you know, being being that kind of guy in school, all my friends, we were the kind of pretentious, bookish, outsider freaks, uh, and c- kind of helped each other get more and more into uh, into kind of subversive ideas and so on. But then, yeah, I think I, I also did, probably not a crazy amount, but a certain amount of, like, drugs and stuff in my teenage years uh, and drinking and stuff. And I think that definitely accelerated and exacerbated certain let's say underlying psychic traumas and whatnot that had i'm sure they would have come to the fore at some stage anyway but i think all of that stuff probably helped to trigger just a really severe breakdown frankly that i had at yeah like i say about age 19 or 20 and then went into therapy um psychoanalysis actually because i was studying a module in psychoanalysis in my uh, philosophy course and elective in psychoanalysis and found the lecturer very authoritative and compelling. And I read his book and I kind of thought, yeah, this guy, you know, I'm in real trouble here. Like I was in bad trouble and I kind of thought, well, this guy, this guy, I think he might get me, you know? And so again, much like becoming a writer, going into therapy, into psychoanalysis was an absolute first in my family, you know, in that kind of Dublin proletarian, uh, back Catholic Catholic kind of conservative upbringing therapy was just not on the menu, you know, uh, from, from, for let's say my parents' generation or whatever. Um, so, so that happened and that was, um, much like when i you know learned to get into meditation and stuff a, a, a couple of years later that was totally transformative and just really opened up my opened up my um psyche to new ways of seeing myself and to understanding myself and uh it was just a lifeline you know i mean it was just a, it was a lifesaver in, which sounds like a cliche but it was it was a lifesaver you know well it also sounds um,
0: like based on your courses of study in college that you were kind of trying in some sort of intuitive way to self-diagnose
1: and self-treat yes yes exactly i, I certainly was um i certainly was and in, in, in a curious way you know even glancing at the shelves here the books and the shelves a lot of the reading i still do seem like that part of that same part of that same process these many years later you know but yeah i was doing that and it did help to some degree
0: was it was it Um, existential like was it like uh, existential questions that were plaguing you was there childhood traumas that you were sorting out Uh, all of the above, like, I don't want you to, you know, don't feel compelled to to dive too deeply into the darkness if you don't feel comfortable, but I'm just trying to get a sense of what it was that was troubling you.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it it was all of the above, right? But it was, uh, I would say, particularly it was, God, how do I go into this without it being too, too, Oh yeah, it was it was it was psychic. It was deep, I was just a very very disturbed young man. Put it that way, you know. Uh, psycho sexual torments. Let's say um, it's hard to know how much is too much to talk about with that. stuff, you know, kind of when I'm writing, I talk about everything. Uh, and, and but, but yeah, just, <laughs> some sort of psychic wound. Let's say that had not been. Um, understood or processed and it was causing me to suffer very intensely and to act in ways that were utterly bewildering to me. Um, and eventually that all just came to a head and I kind of, uh, I just kind of radically lost the ability to function in the world and really thought that my future was going to be, I was going to be one of those crazy people that just falls between the cracks. You know, I, that was how it really seemed as Self-dramatizing as that sounds, it really isn't. Um, for a couple of years, that seemed how it was going to be, because uh, I got myself into such a twisted-up, dark, lonely, terrified, traumatized headspace that I, uh, I, I, I didn't know, and I didn't have the kind of vocabulary or the experiential vocabulary to, um, to know what that all meant and, uh, or to, or to see a way out of it, you know, and uh, the, psychothe- and therapy, the
0: psychotherapy gave you a path or at least a yeah, way absolutely. of making sense of
1: it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because yeah, here was this, you know, much older guy and very authoritative in his study full of books. And I mean, it was the classic kind of Freudian thing of your lot. You're literally lying on a couch talking about your, your mother and your dreams and your fears and your fantasies but it it really i think i've heard you know i've read so many accounts of madness and of um extreme kind of psychic derailment and so on and one of the kind of universals is the, the, one of the reasons people suffer so much when they're on when they're going mad in whatever form is the loneliness of it you know is the sense that th- this experience is completely horrifyingly singular And there's nothing, um, no one else is having this or has had this and so on. And then, of course, you talk to a confident, competent, uh, very intellectually adept therapist, psychoanalyst, whatever, and they they don't just click their fingers and all your problems go away, but just by them talking to you and somehow containing that, a a huge burden of that loneliness dissolves quite quickly. And then you still have to suffer. Uh, You're still in a kind of hell. You're still in a psychic underworld for even a few years after trying to find your way out of it. But that initial sense of pure, terrifying loneliness um, becomes mitigated by, by the process of therapy. I, I, yeah, it was it was a very transformative thing for me. And then, you know, year, years went by and I didn't go into therapy again until a few years ago. I mean, again, you're you're in, you, you know, you're in California and I feel like everything I know about California, it's very much a culture that's very open to therapies and so on. So it doesn't have that kind of lingering stigma or sense of shame or embarrassment around it that was probably still even hanging over it in the Irish culture where I was, um, when I was kind of coming of age, uh, I didn't necessarily feel that myself, you know, I just kind of, I had read enough to know that these things were probably good, you know?
0: Yeah. I think uh, it's always hard for people to admit that they need help, you know, I, I, I think maybe once you get over that it's harder for some than it is for others and I think where you live and the culture that you're raised in certainly have an impact but I think that yeah. that especially in that first time you know where you're trying to kind of get over the hurdle and get into a comfort zone where you're talking to a therapist and going to these difficult places to try to sort them out that's not easy for anybody yeah. and then if you compound that with like an actual cultural stigma Um, or you have some sort of like familial discomfort where your parents are questioning why you're doing this, you know, or something like that. That only, that only adds, you know, adds to the burden, but, um, good for you. I mean, it sounds like you spent your twenties in therapy and then doing like a couple of years of intensive Buddhist meditation and reading Mm -hmm. a lot of philosophy and traveling.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. And, um, I mean, having some great laughs along the way, I, I make myself, you know, I, I can, it all sounds so gloomy and serious, but, you know, I had a lot of fun in my 20s too. And I, you know, tra- yeah, traveled around a lot and uh, had some great times. And I, you know, I spent about three or four years of that living in London and writing my first book. And I was very deeply in love uh, with, with someone at the time. And so there, there were there were really magical times in that period of life too.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it it sounds like one of the things that strikes me reading Threshold um, that I envy is the amount of travel that you've done. But I think more broadly speaking, you're a person who has had the luxury, but also the good sense to go out and take his own education. Uh, I always say that you learn more in a travel experience in a condensed amount of time than you could learn In a conventional educational setting, like a school setting, in like, you know, 10 times that amount of time. You know, it really is a concentrated form of learning. And um, I don't know. I, I feel like you have good instincts in that sense and the courage to sort of follow them. You know, going to a therapist, going to a Buddhist meditation center going to do a silent retreat in Thailand, which we haven't even talked about at uh, Ajahn Chah's old monastery. Like you at least have the courage of your convictions. And I think as a result of these experiences, you gain a level of education that would be hard to access conventionally or solely through books. Not that those things are bad, but I I just, I envy the amount of getting your hands dirty that you've done, Uh, you know, that's really admirable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. And but one of the th- it's funny because one of the things I knew what I wanted to do in life was um to travel. I just had this very vague but quite persistent notion that, you know, when I finished my studies that that was going to be a big part of it that there was a lot of desire there for me. I didn't know particularly where I wanted to go or what, but you know, other people they kind of know what job they want to do or what career they want to pursue. Again, I had these quite vague, well, they weren't even that vague, but I had dreams of becoming some sort of writer. But because of the background I came from and so on, I had no idea if that was even remotely realistic or if I was just deluding myself or something. But and I had no real idea how you go about going from wanting to write to actually doing it in such a way that you'll get published. So that took like a decade before I figured all that out. But the other thing that I did want to do was just see the world, really, um, as, as basic as that sounds. And so uh, I, I, I I did. And, um, and I, I've, I kind of still, I, I remember thinking, I've really got to get this out of my system. And, you know, I'll just explore this. And, you know, the 20s seems as good a time as... For that as any, and then you know maybe I'll hit my thirties and that will that will quieten down, and I'll probably you know who knows, but I'll probably end up staying somewhere. And then of course I didn't. By the time you know my first book was published when I was thirty one, and it kind of kicked off in a in a reasonable way and enough that I could kind of say okay I'm going all in now. I'm gonna you know quit all this teaching work and I'm just gonna live. I'm just going to write, live to write, you know, and then um, then I spent, you know, I'm 38 now and I've spent most of this decade also, just kind of drifting from one city to another and living in different places. And it kind of suits it still suits me down to the ground. You know, I, I like I said, I thought I would grow out of it, but I never really have done. I mean, I think it's starting to change now because I'm just starting to feel a bit. i i I don't know i'm starting to desire different things you know which which i think is only natural and healthy but um like what well i i don't know i mean so i've been here in berlin on and off for about nearly three years now and um on and off as you know i've been moving back to ireland for a few months then coming back here then going to ireland and back here so i'm kind of I've been mostly here, but I'm kind of in between worlds a little bit. I feel like I haven't committed fully to here and I haven't committed fully to Ireland. And I just feel at some point I'm gonna have to, you know, make a, make a decision and live somewhere with some, with, with even some kind of pretense of commitment, you know? So, uh, so yeah that's just that's been it you know I had more or less persuaded myself that I was just going to go back to Ireland and live in the countryside my girlfriend and I had you know um just go to the coast somewhere and stay there because uh because here's the other thing is that the um the freedoms and the kind of uh the, the illicit side of the Berlin, the, the famously kind of decadent sides of Berlin, I'm starting to realize that they're becoming, if I stayed here too long, they would potentially become a bit of a problem. They have not, <laughs> they, they, they haven't been, you know, hitherto, you know, I lived here for a couple of years and kept all that stuff. I indulged in it, but at a nice safe distance. But in the last five or six months, there's been a lot of kind of really fun people around and uh, I just feel like two, three years could pass, you know, and I'd be like, shit, I haven't done anything. I haven't done any work. I've I've been having a great time and nothing's getting done. So part of me is thinking just for purely ambition-based reasons and self-preservation, I should probably move on. But uh, then I went out for a walk just about a week ago. It was a, a rare kind of beautiful day in the winter here in Berlin. I mean, it's a cold, bleak winter, but Friedrichshain, the neighbourhood I'm in, just looks so gorgeous. And, you know, it's all under lockdown now, but it's kind of the greatest city in Europe, I feel. And particularly when it all opens back up again, if the vaccine gets rolled out and stuff, there's kind of nowhere more, for me anyway, there's nowhere more inspiring to be. So I was kind of thinking... Wait, why in the hell would I want to drag myself away from this place and go back to Ireland where everything is familiar and very expensive and all of that? So I'm a little bit torn. (laughs) I feel that.
0: I feel like so many people, maybe, maybe COVID has made these sorts of like mental debates more prevalent, like trying to, because now it's like, wow, I don't need to go into the office. I can just work from home. And uh, it's, you know, I'm reevaluating what's important to me. And why am I living in this? polluted city when i could be out at the coast or up in the woods yeah. or in the mountains or something and i think a lot of people are you know having this sort of conversation and i never f- yeah. i i've lived in los angeles for 20 years i've spent yeah. like an obscene percentage of my adult existence in the confines of this city right. uh, i don't even like to think about how much time i've spent <laughs> here and yet but i I, mean, can, you, you, uh, I can never figure you, out where else to go you know it's like where yeah. do i go
1: But I mean, you must love it or do you? I mean, there must be something apart from raising family and so on that keeps you there. You see, I don't really know L.A. I've only I I spent some time living in San Francisco and I kind of passed through L.A. on a couple of trips to some other part of California, but I haven't really spent any time there. So most of my impressions of it are from cinema and literature. So but I mean, it, it must be a compelling place to keep you there for 20 years yeah yeah. Or no it's I mean, it there's just, a lot that just,
0: I, there's a lot that I yeah. like about it it's a beautiful place like a stunningly beautiful place in a lot of ways and it's an yeah. unknowable place it's so big uh, I've lived here 20 years I still barely know anything about it uh, and I like that yeah. like I don't like I think I would get bored if I just kind of exhausted every mystery to a place and knew every street corner like I kind of like yeah. the fact that I can still go out for a drive and go through a neighborhood I've never seen before every single time I leave the house yes <laughs> um, uh, it's, yeah. a, it's See, a big I love place that too and I
1: when I come from Dublin I, I don't know if you've been to Ireland or to Dublin but uh it, it's a small place you know even though Dublin is the capital it's a it's it's more of a it feels like a village not even a town it feels like a bit of a village, and it's beautiful. But it's the opposite. You're saying you, you go out in L.A. and you it's like here in Berlin. I'll find somewhere new all the time. In Dublin, you will not. <laughs> You'll find exactly the same streets, the same. It's very hard to get a sense of something new happening there.
0: So, yeah, I was supposed to go to Ireland uh, a few years ago. It was my wife and I. I think it was our 10-year anniversary. Oh, yeah. And I had the whole trip planned, booked. It was orchestrated uh-huh. beautifully. I, I like... I even think I got like, I want to say I had like business class flights because I use points in some sort of like, you know how hard it is to use those points. Like it was a brilliant configuration. Like I made everything (laughs) line up and then my father-in-law, his health declined and he passed away. We had to cancel our trip like three days before
1: we left. Oh no! So
0: yeah, I was—we were gonna stay in a castle, like this whole, oh, oh. the whole. I had the whole Irish dream vacation. Oh
1: well, that's like, a shame. Yeah, you, you, I, 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 I have to say, you would have probably had the most splendid time. I mean, it, it w- w- would that have been your first time there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's we a were both really so excited to go, you know. That's a shame, yeah, because, it, I mean, it is beautiful. For all my kind of pissing on it as a, as a parochial little place, it's such a beautiful island, you know, it truly is. Yeah, um, especially and, in and the I summer. going back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I'm a real, I'm a winter kind of person. I, I think when I lived in California, it was only for about six or seven months, and uh, it was in San Francisco. But as beautiful as San Francisco is, I realized I could never live somewhere that didn't have the autumn the way we have it here. You know, I just missed the European grey, the misery of the European grey, and, <laughs> and the the winter time. Uh, and it, I say misery, I don't find it miserable at all. I just love the uh, I love the seasons here. You know, I think that's why I could never live in L.A. or, uh, or much of California for all the the, the 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 splendor and the beauty. I would just I would find myself really melancholy for the gray skies and the, the dark winter months. The yeah, coziness. You know, I was winter.
0: raised in uh, Wisconsin, so I grew up freezing my ass off in the winter. And actually, yeah. like I, we've been back. My wife is from Minnesota originally, and like we go back up there yeah. for the holidays. You know, sometimes, and uh, it's nice to be back in winter. Like I don't necessarily. Yeah. I, I guess I've lived in Los Angeles so long. I've convinced myself that I like <laughs> perpetual sunshine, but I don't know. You know, like. <laughs> Uh, It just depends. But there is something kind of crazy making about the sameness of it all. Like the weather's always the same. It's always the same.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: But I I do, you know, there are days in the middle of winter where you're out like at the beach and you sort of feel like you're getting away with something. I like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um,
0: So, what are your parents who, neither of whom, um, you know, went beyond secondary school and neither of whom, have published books or done anything like that, what do they make of your expatriated literary existence? And I, before I forget too, you know, just because I know there are a lot of people listening at home who are writers, you said briefly that the the novel that you published when you were living in London took off well enough for you to sort of quit the teaching. Does that mean mm-hmm. you, it sold enough copies and generated enough sales for you to, to have some time to
1: keep going? Yeah, kind of. I mean, uh, well, uh, well, let's say, yeah, I mean, the first part of your question about my parents, I think they're um, initially kind of flabbergasted, but uh, entirely delighted, really, that I think because of those kind of troubled years that I referred to earlier, I think um, they were probably fearful for quite a while when i was younger as well that i was you know i i'd gone too far somewhere and i wasn't going to come back not you know i would always be somehow i was i was a lost cause maybe and so the fact then that i figured out what i was passionate about in life and then made a success of it you know to whatever degree i have done was uh was a real um they're just all the all the obvious things they're just very proud of it and they you know they They keep up with my stuff. I kind of wish they wouldn't because I write about exactly the stuff that you don't want your mother to read. No matter what age you are, that's just. (laughs) Although I have to say, this book—it used to almost annoy me how uh, avidly they would read my stuff and my interviews and stuff. But with this book, I think because they got wind of through some of the pre-publicity that I did around Threshold, uh, I think they got a bit rattled about, or I don't know, they got a bit wary because of the way I was talking about how candid and how explicit and how, um, revealing and even exhibitionistic it is. And I think that, I think they've read it now, or at least my dad has, but I think it took them a lot longer to read this one than (laughs) it did my previous books. Yeah. We would never, you know, it's kind of, um, I'm very kind of prudish when I'm around my family, you know, we're, 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 you know, it's that Catholic thing. We don't sit around having, Talking about uh, the kind of stuff that's in this book very readily, you know, like Berlin, I don't know, sex club scenes or anything like that. Quite the opposite. But I think that's where you get the energy to write about this stuff. You know, I think a lot of writers have that experience. All that is secretive and shameful and a taboo in their family constellation becomes the stuff where all the energy is in their writing but um but no they're, they're just very you know um pleased and interested to see where it's gone uh, the other thing about yeah my first book well what happened was uh, I was living I wrote the book in London and uh then for various reasons one of which was the 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 breakup of a long term relationship I moved back to Ireland when I was uh, 30 or so and Hadn't yet found a publisher for it and was a complete, like a a genuine outsider to literary culture and to the literary world. I really didn't know any editors or writers or publishing or I just didn't really even know how that world worked. I was starting to learn, you know, but then I went back to Ireland and uh, the book was initially picked up by a... Uh, kind of small, like an independent Irish publishing house called Lilliput Press. And uh, I kind of discovered my inner fame whore, self-promoter. I I just kind of knew, you see, the book was very provocative and it was a very kind of drug-fueled, you know, hedonistic kind of... uh, gleefully almost nihilistic kind of book you know and uh i just kind of i kind of knew i was onto something with it, particularly within the context of ireland and the kind of staidness of a lot of the cultural production there so i kind of knew it, if someone put this out that I, it it could make waves and then it kind of did and so it was put out by this irish publisher and it just again ireland is quite a small place there's only four four and a half million of us there but it kind of took off and it caused all of this sensation and I kind of became notorious for a while. And, uh, and then Bloomsbury, um, who, you know, it's a, I guess, UK based, but international publisher, they got wind of this hype it was causing and they bought up the book and they published it themselves. It's actually the, the movie is about the, it's been turned into a a film now, which will be out in, I think it's March, um, with like Anya Taylor Joy and Charles Chapman and stuff. So, what's the title uh, again? It's Here Are the Young Men. Here Are the Young Men. And when you Uh, say
0: when you say that you discovered your inner fame whore, like I, you know, uh, (laughs) we've all been there. Anybody who's written a book and has tried to promote it, you know, you have to engage in some self promotion. You have to like go on social media or do interviews like this or whatever it is but what yeah. did you do anything in particular that was effective that helped to break the book out and get it into the hands uh, of readers?
1: I think, I mean, two two things, I guess. One was that just, it, I think it was my novelty as an Irish writer. And by that, I mean that, I mean, I, I just, I was kind of, again, I was a total outsider. I didn't really know what the Irish literary kind of culture was but I just had lots of violent prejudices that it was very dull and sleepy and boring and conservative and they turned out to be largely accurate and so you know when you write a book that was kind of flagrant and quite and then you're 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 you know if you're this guy who's bringing it who just doesn't really fit into those categories of what's expected of an Irish writer I just kind of I was given lots of interviews where I would just kind of i don't know say a lot of provocative shit wasn't even trying to say provocative stuff i was just talking about the kind of things i always talk about but that was odd and unexpected enough to kind of uh, just to to make waves you know and uh i probably offended i think i made like so many inadvertently pissed off so many people that i'm still living in the kind of after effects of that in the kind of in the in the in the small kind of mean little community of Irish culture but it was a lot of fun too and I just realized that um, I really enjoyed the um, to my surprise really but I really enjoyed the whole kind of art of creating a kind of public persona and fucking with people's heads and you know, kind of using every interview. I don't really do it so much anymore because whatever. It was just a phase, but it was a lot of fun just to kind of use every interview and every appearance as some sort of intervention and some sort of um, stunt and just kind of s- skewer everything a bit and subvert everything a bit. And and, uh, and it just it just worked, you know, but also just little things. Like I remember... Uh, so this independent publisher to put it out, you know, they were like a lot of publishers. They were, when it came to social media, they were maybe a bit kind of creaky and a bit by the books or something. So, and they weren't, I was kind of looking at it going, God, you know, you're on Twitter and you've got all these followers, but you're not utilizing it. And I had my own Twitter account that I was using to find out how, who, how to publishing industry worked in Ireland and the UK and who the people were and the editors were, and you know, I was publishing a lot of stuff in literary journals at the time, but somehow I persuaded my publisher and his office manager to give me the password of their social media account. And so I kind of just used it for about three weeks before one of their other authors presumably complained about me and said, why is this guy's book getting just constant publicity on 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 your on your Twitter account? But I kind of used their um, Twitter account to just broadcast everything that I was doing and just cause a bit of noise around me. It was pretty canny when I look back. For all the kind of diatribe I've given against how da- how much damage Twitter has done to me now, I certainly exploited it to my own ends, pretty cannily for a while too. Uh, so yeah, just that kind of thing really.
0: Hmm. And, it, and it's like, you know, you just caught a wave. It sounds like that's what happens. The timing yeah, was I right.
1: Cut a, caught a wave. And here's the other thing is that, and this is, I think this is one of the blessings of being an Irish writer, even compared to a, a British writer, but especially compared to an American writer is that if you're an American writer, to catch a wave, I think you need vast, almost you know, astronomical amounts of luck and of circumstances going the right way. And the same, but to a lesser extent, for British writers. But to catch a wave and even to make a wave as an Irish writer, it's not as difficult because it's a small pond, it's a small country, so you can kind of generate enough uh, noise then that it kind of it just echoes around in this small little bowl of of Ireland and now because there's a certain well there's quite a lot of international and UK attention on the Irish kind of literary world um, that can then you can you can achieve a kind of escape velocity, put it that way. You know, you can blast out of it and then go and then get your books noticed internationally. So I do think that there's a certain advantage to being an Irish writer like that. You mm-hmm. can, yeah, you can just get noticed more easily than, you know, when I think of the vastness of America, it's like I've got musician friends and they go touring in America and it just sounds like, famously why 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 it's so difficult for bands you know you you play a venue and all these people turn up and then you drive off into the night and you drive for eight hours or something and it's like the silence just swallows up everything behind you it's very hard to make an impact in a in a in a country that vast
0: well and so it's, it's also hard, in, a, in a culture where everybody's famous now i mean that's <laughs> I mean, really, you talk about the impacts of social media. Everybody is a celebrity in their own little way now. And uh, everybody's sort of like one of the things that creeps me out the most about social media is the way in which human beings took to it, like with almost no instruction, you know, and like started using it in it made me feel like we've all been myself included like we've all been sort of programmed by madison avenue and by capitalist forces to think of ourselves as products and we've sort of integrated in ways that we might not even be aware of the language of advertising uh, into our own little self-advertisements like you see where i'm going like it was like it was like fish to water it's crazy
1: yeah we were we were primed for it this whole era of this epoch of self-branding and self-marketing it was almost like we were we were secretly jumping at the bit and as soon as we got the tools we were all over it right
0: right it was it was very it was very instinctual and like obvious how to use it and now it's yeah. just like now, like very quickly. I'm like, okay, this is exhausting. This has
1: got to stop, <laughs> please. Yeah, yeah, it ain't going away. It's I, know, I know. I know. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, listen, I have taken up uh, a good bit of your time, and uh, I don't. Mm-hmm. I know it's getting late over there in Berlin, so I don't want to. Yeah. Uh, you know, you strike me as somebody who would be a night owl, but
1: I'm not going to push I my luck. <laughs> I'm, I am a night owl, but uh, no, it was it was a great pleasure to chat
0: yeah congratulations on threshold i really enjoyed it and uh are you working on anything else right now you have another book in the works or
1: i kind of do but actually what i've been working on over the last uh this is a a kind of anecdote in itself but what i've been working on over the last three or four weeks is a a long essay I'm about nine thousand words into a kind of personal essay about how i recently became the global voice of hyundai you know hyundai cars um if you've seen whatever the latest advertisement is, and I think it's gone all over the States and all the English speaking countries, the voiceover doing the kind of obnoxious bland, insipid corporate bullshit. That's me doing the voice and it happened. I've never done anything like that in my life, but I got the gig on a kind of, because of a random confluence of circumstances and, uh, it was such a good story that I kind of had to write about it so I got commissioned to write the story of how I became a, sh- a corporate shill, basically <laughs> so it's a weird world yeah it is it is so, uh, so, yeah and, and other than that I've just been working away on a kind of um, let's say a, a non-fiction book a kind of book about a book about other books uh, I won't I won't say too much about it but yeah I've been working on a book about other people's books put it that way.
0: All right. Well, Rob, it's a pleasure to meet you over the transom. Thanks so much once again, and, and best of luck on uh, everything that you have going.
1: Thanks so much, Brad. It was great.
0: Okay, folks, there you go. That is Rob Doyle. His book is called Threshold, and it is available in the United States from Bloomsbury. You can find Rob online at robdoyle.net. He is uh, intermittently on Twitter at robdoyle one And you can find him on Instagram. His handle on Instagram is at Skull Hotel. Once again, the book is called Threshold from Rob Doyle. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, nearly 700 and counting, are all available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the program and you listen regularly and you can uh, swing it, you can tip your server at uh, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have something to say to me and you want to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you would like another Other People shirt or sweatshirt or tank top, you can get one of those over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just click on the t-shirt on the left sidebar. The Other People podcast is a weekly program new episodes every Wednesday occasionally there will be a Sunday show but new episodes every Wednesday that's been the case for a long time almost a decade now this is the show's 10th year did you know that? The Other People Podcast has its own official app it too is free The Other People with Brad List, the app wherever you get your apps go find it get it download it it's free Next week on the program, Ping Chen is my guest. Her new story collection, Land of Big Numbers, is superb. There's a lot of buzz about it, and I had a great conversation with her, so stay tuned for Ping Chen next week on the Other People podcast. So, hey, we made it. Did we make it? I'm recording this the night before inauguration. Let's just assume we made it, right? We made it. Nothing terrible happened. It's over. Please tell me it's over.